You all have been the ones to provide these topics, either by submitting uh, scripture texts or theological questions or questions of the news of the day that you want, whatever the, whoever the preacher is up here, to maybe take a shot at. And we've been doing that throughout the summer, and Jules and I have taken turns with different questions. Our guest preachers have done the same. And so I drew for this week the following question. My question was, if God is so inclusive, then why does God send people to hell? Now, I was tempted to try to be cute and to make this the world record shortest sermon ever and simply stand before you and say, here's the good news. God doesn't do that. Let us pray. <laughs> but, but even though in my heart I, I believe that, I don't think we should be that cute with the topic of hell. I think it is something that we need to take seriously and have some conversation about. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to talk about hell. I'm going to read this scripture that we're going to be rooted in. And then I'm going to talk about some words, some ancient words and some new words uh, as they're translated, as we know them in our, our scriptures. I'm going to tell a little bit of my own story when it comes to hell and and why I hold the belief that I do. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit about a very real hell that I genuinely do believe in. First of all, uh, a disclaimer. Literally, volumes have been written about the topic of hell. Some which people have been praised for, some which people have gotten in trouble for. I am telling you this morning, I am not going to preach the definitive word on hell right now, today. So please, if you, if you think you'll walk out of here and you have hell all figured out, sorry, not going to happen. <laughs> the other thing I will say is this. We are blessed to be a part of a church family that has a very wide, open spectrum in terms of theological beliefs. Which means some of the things that I say this morning, some of you all might not agree with. And around here, we cherish that. We appreciate that. So what I say this morning is also not this church's final word on the topic of hell. It isn't, we're not, I'm not establishing doctrine in this space. Feel free to disagree with me. And if you want to get together and talk to me about it, glad to do that after I get back from Hawaii. So, let's get into the scripture for... This morning, we are in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 48. And there we read, Jesus said to him, teacher, no, John said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell 
to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. We ought to pray after that. God, who is love, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds this morning to receive a loving word from you. And I pray that that's what this is. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. A couple things just to note right off the top when it comes to the topic of hell in the Bible. First of all, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, never mention hell. Don't talk about it at all, okay? The Apostle Paul, so that's one beginning of the book. Beginning of the Bible. Toward the end, the person who wrote a lot of what we read toward the end, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul never mentions hell. Doesn't talk about hell. Okay? The Gospel of John never mentions hell. Right? However, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there we find Jesus mentioning hell and actually talks about it quite frequently. So we can't just dismiss this idea out of hand. So I want to talk about a few words. First of all, the word hell itself is obviously an English word. It's not an ancient word necessarily. It's an English word. And it's a word that translators use when they translate our scriptures to get across a particular idea. They translate three words mainly as hell. And I want to briefly talk about these three words. The first one is the word sheol. Sheol, that's a Hebrew word. It's what we find in our Hebrew scriptures, this word sheol. And it literally means place of the dead. Now, quick aside. Back then, we had an ancient cosmology. The Israelites would have had a cosmology, which was a three-tiered cosmology. What that means is they saw the world three levels. Up here, all of this, the heavens. This is where source of life comes from in power, and we find God's heavens up here. We have earth then, all terrestrial beings and life as we know it, the things we see, this is earth, and then there was a level below the earth. And that is, that was known as Sheol, Sheol, right? Literally just means the place of the dead. Their thinking was, this is where life comes from, all the source of life. We're all here. When people die, where do we put them? Underneath, right? Important to know that the word shield does not, in the Hebrew scriptures, carry with it any sense of judgment. It isn't like if you're bad, you go down here, and if you're good, you're going. No, not at all. Everyone goes to shield. Everyone goes to the place of the dead. No judgment about it. However, when they translate, when translators translate this word in scriptures, then we get some confusion around which idea it's attached to. Very quickly, I'm going to give you an example. In Psalm 18.5, the NRSV, which is a version that Jules and I will use pretty typically, the NRSV says this, 
The cords of Sheol, Sheol entangled me. We read that this morning earlier. The snares of death confronted me. Another version of scripture, in fact, one of the more popular ones, even still, though it's one of our oldest, the King James Version. The King James Version, which many will argue is the authoritative version of scripture, it actually translates it this way. The sorrows of hell encompassed me. The snares of death prevented me. Now, the idea of hell and the grave, in my mind, is different. Two different things, right? So we have a problem when the translator translates it here. Here's what's crazy. Same version of scripture. In Genesis, the King James Version, in Genesis 42, 38, translates the word sheol as the grave. Changes the the whole thing, right? Same word, but translates it as the grave. See how we get some confusion there around the idea of hell and the place of the dead? The other word we find in Scripture, another one of the three words, is the word Hades. Hades is a Greek word and comes from the Greek idea of the same sort. Place of the dead. No judgment about it. Hades is where all the dead go. Jesus uses this word when, in Matthew 16, 18, when he says, I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of Hades will not prevail. We also, in the Apostles' Creed, in some versions, we have Jesus descended into Hades. But some folks say descended into hell, adding to the confusion, right? But ultimately, ultimately, that word still, place of the dead. No judgment, Hades is the place of the dead. Last word I want to talk about. And this is the word that we see translated as hell in our text for this morning. It's an Aramaic word that Jesus uses called Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is different because Gehenna is a very real place. In fact, if you want to be cheeky, people ask if you believe in hell, you can say, yes, I do. I believe in Gehenna. Because Gehenna was a real place. Historically, it was a place outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was the town garbage dump. Gehenna is the place where all the refuge from the city would have been taken. And back then, the way they would, des- they would destroy, the way they would eliminate all of this refuge, we still do this in some places. My grandparents had a burn barrel. Uh, they would take all this garbage and they just set it on fire. And in fact, they kept it burning so that the fires of Gehenna continually burned all the time. Right? The other thing that you have when you have a garbage dump, and you know this, and this will get a little gross for a second, but when you have garbage, oftentimes what comes with garbage? Maggots, right? Little worms that slither and always seem to be there and never seem to go away and die. You're starting to get a picture here of what Jesus is talking about. The other thing that will show up at garbage dumps is dogs. Dogs will show up at the dump and they'll, they'll get through the garbage. And sometimes they'll fight over that garbage. And when they fight, their teeth will be all like this. And they'll be gnashing their teeth, right? Some of you who have heard descriptions of hell might have heard some of these descriptors. Also, there's talk about Gehenna being a place of weeping. And that is because there is a dark history when it comes to Gehenna. Because in addition to being the garbage dump... Back when we read in Chronicles and Kings, 
we read about when the Canaanites and Israelites started to intermingle culturally and some of their religious practices also began to intermingle. Now, let me be clear. Not all foreign religious practices are bad at all. Some are actually really good. Some of them we've adopted here, right? However, some of Canaanite religious practice, in order to appease Baal, right, or Moloch was another god that they had, another deity, they took to the practice of child sacrifice. And at Gehenna is where they would, and this gets gruesome for a moment, they would bring children to be burned alive, essentially, and to appease these gods. So you have weeping and gnashing of teeth and pain and darkness all associated with Gehenna. So you can see easily why it would be connected to the idea of hell, weeping, burning, gnashing of teeth, worms that never die, all of those kinds of things. But these are all descriptors of a very real place, not necessarily a place of eternal punishment. Not necessarily a place of eternal punishment. But this idea and understanding of hell, with all of these descriptors included, that's what was handed to me. I grew up in a conservative evangelical church, and this is what I was taught was very real. And so I want to tell you two particular stories, both of which interestingly take place in high school cafeterias. So um, I'm going to tell you a couple of cafeteria stories. The first one was when I was six years old at Mount Pleasant High School in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. My parents were attending a local revival event of some sort. And I remember the preacher very, very um, vividly describing what happens to people who don't receive Jesus and talked about these fires of hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and the worms and the description. And he really got into the pain of it. And I remember at six years old going, no, I don't want that. I want to avoid that. And remember when he said, there's a way that you can avoid this and spend the rest of your life in heaven in eternity with God. And that is if you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And so in that moment, I said the sinner's prayer really, really, really well as best I could. And I received Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And I got saved that day so that I could avoid the fires of hell. And that idea of what what would happen to people who didn't say those, what I'll call magic words, that stuck with me throughout my young life, up until I was a teenager even. And this is where the second cafeteria story comes in. I, I think I've shared this in church before. Um, this story comes with a couple of layers of embarrassment. Uh, first of all, I was, as a teenager, a part of a Christian hip-hop and R&B duo with my best friend, Chris. We did the dancing and the hats backwards and like the whole thing, and we were called he, mm, and apostrophe me, because that's what you did in the early 90s. He and me, and it was about, there's two of us, and also God was the he. Anyway, so um, I was a part of this this, uh, I think there's video evidence. I hope it's been erased, though. Anyway, um, I was a part of this, this music group, and we would go around and we would give concerts. 
all over the state of Michigan. And I remember somehow, I don't know how we managed to make this happen, but my own high school, public high school, Gaylord High School in Gaylord, Michigan, said that we could do a concert in the cafetorium, cafeteria area. Allowed us to do this kind of, it's very clearly a Christian thing. They said, cool, you do it. And so we invited all of our friends to come and to see this concert. And there's a moment in every concert that I was usually put in charge of. I was responsible for that moment where we called the question, right? Where we called the question, are you ready to receive Jesus? And I remember trying to figure out how can I communicate the, the urgency of this. And I remember my, my sainted mother giving me some coaching and saying, well, maybe you do something like this. She said, your friends are familiar with, I mean, well familiar with, your teenagers, you're familiar with McDonald's. So maybe you do something like this. You have all your friends close their eyes. Say, I want you to close your eyes, and now I want you to imagine that you are in the back of McDonald's, back there where the deep fryer is. And I want you to imagine taking your hands and slowly sinking them into that deep fryer and getting them up to the elbow and up toward your shoulder. I want you to imagine the incredible, searing, horrible pain. I don't want you to imagine the smell of that burning flesh and the torture that that would be. And now I want you to imagine that for all eternity. Ooh. So I did this. I said this to all of my friends. Oh, there's a lot of shame. A lot of shame around that one. I said this to my friends. I, I actually said these words. But I remember, I remember as I was saying it, as I was watching the looks of horror on my friend's face, I remember thinking deep down somewhere, this isn't right. Something about this isn't right. I've been told that this is true, but deep down in my guts, I don't know if I believe this, but I'm supposed to say this because I don't want anyone to go to hell, but this, this picture of hell doesn't make sense. And as I began to grow older and to, to mature intellectually and, and, and socially and otherwise, and my faith matured, I, I started to question and, and started to say, wait a minute, if God is all loving, if we serve a God who is eternal love, then how can it be possible that at some point God turns into an eternal torturer of all kinds, millions and millions, billions of people? Because they didn't say these magic words. That doesn't make sense to me. I can't, literally, I can't stomach that. And I remember starting to question that. Starting to say, if we're, I thought we were told to love our enemies. If we're supposed to love our enemies, then why would anyone get thrown into a fiery pit for eternity? That's not love. That doesn't make sense. I remember going, I still had these kinds of ideas this doctrine was handed to me, and, and, and so I still had it in my head when I went out to seminary. And I remember, I remember sitting in my first New Testament class with Klein Snodgrass, Professor Klein Snodgrass, who taught the Gospels. And I remember feeling a sense of relief because he, a sense of relief, because I remember him saying, "Look, I need to be clear about something. 
Most of, if not all of the ideas that we have about hell, most of the descriptions, most of the pictures, most of what we know about hell as we describe it with devils and pitchforks and fire and flame and torture and all of that is not found in Scripture. It's not from the New Testament. It primarily comes from Dante. It comes from Dante. Dante's great work of Italian poetry. Some of you may have read that. Most of what we know about hell, most of the way we describe it, comes from Dante. That was such an impactful work of literature that it seeped its way into Christian doctrine. I remember feeling a sense of, oh, that's why it never made sense to me, right? Even after reading the Bible, hell didn't make sense to me in that way. And I continue to learn that not all Christians believe in a hell like that. There's a lot of Christians that don't believe in a place of eternal torment and torture. Plenty of them. And then while I was in seminary, a person who was incredibly influential on me um, put out a book that has been incredibly influential for many, many. uh, It's a guy named Rob Bell. And some of you may remember when he put out his book, Love Wins. Love Wins was a, dealt with theology and scripture and history, all to communicate. Rob, who was an evangelical pastor at the time, was communicating this whole hell thing, the way we've ta- thought about it and taught it. Maybe not. M- maybe no. Maybe that's not true. And let me provide some, some basis for that. And I remember how it was in that moment in reading those reading those texts and praying through and learning about other branches of our Christian faith that don't believe in this place of eternal torment, don't believe in a hell like that. I remember after finishing that book, it was then that I could officially let go of hell. And I did. I said, I don't believe in that anymore. I don't think it makes sense for who God is. I don't believe in a place of eternal tormenting punishment. I don't don't believe in that. And I let that go. I still let that go. I don't believe it. I don't believe in that hell. But what that could tend to, to make us do, and I'll admit I've, I've done this, is I'll, I'll just dismiss the idea of hell out of hand. Well, then let's just forget it. Let's not talk about it. It's not real. It's not there. Let's move on. There are other things we can talk about, other things we can focus on. But we can't do that. As much as we, we want to, we can't do that because Jesus talks about it. Jesus talks about hell. Last month I was, uh, I read an article that that I saw it popped up online and it was clearly clickbait for someone like me because the, the headline of this article said, progressive pastors, no, it said progressives need to start preaching hell again. And I was like, ooh, Click. I want to see what this is all about. And I read the article. Basically, this person was arguing that it's time for progressives who don't necessarily like to talk about the idea. We have to address hell, but maybe we address it a little more like Jesus did it. First quote, Oscar, will you put that up there for me? He writes this. The standard evangelical teaching is that hell is a place for those who don't believe in Jesus, and there are a few passages that can be read that way on the surface, but they are the minority. More often than not, biblical references to hell and judgment are in response to social evils carried out in the here and now. Next slide. 
For example, Jesus preaches hell for those who harm children. He preaches hell for those who fail to welcome strangers or provide basic necessities for those in need. He preaches hell for those who hoard excessive wealth. And he really goes off on hypocritical religious leaders who use their faith as a mask to hide their own complicity in such things. Quote there from Matthew 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape being sentenced to hell? Rob Bell writes, Oscar, you can put the next one up for me, bud. He writes, Jesus did not use hell to try and compel heathens and pagans to believe in God so they wouldn't burn when they die. He talked about hell to very religious people to warn them about the consequences of straying from their God-given calling and identity to show the world God's love. So to get back to the question and to answer it straight, as straightforward as I can, I don't believe God sends anyone to hell. I don't believe God does that. Not in eternal place of torture. Not a temporary current place of torture. God doesn't send people to there. But I do believe that the latter exists. That we do have hell here on earth, here and now. Imagine the pain of those burying their loved ones who were killed randomly and viciously by white nationalist terrorists over the last couple of weeks. And tell me that that can't be described as hell. Imagine the shame, horror, and outrage of people of color who saw a black man paraded through the streets by white police officers on horseback, rope around his neck. Imagine that feeling and tell me that that can't be described as hell. Imagine those children separated from their families and held in cages at the border for who knows how long. Imagine the terror felt by those children who went to their first day of school and by the end of the day found out that mom and or dad had been arrested and was not going to be there when they got home and they weren't sure when they were going to be there. If you have not watched the video of this, I, I couldn't show it or I wouldn't have gotten through the rest of my sermon of this girl crying for her dad saying, please let my dad go. Please let him be there when I get home. We're scared. Please, please, my country, my government, please. And tell me that that little girl isn't experiencing some version of hell. I think, unlike any sort of eternal place of torturous punishment, that we can or cannot concoct in our minds. We don't have to imagine the hell in the situations that I just described because we can see it here and now, here on earth. Some of us have experienced, some of us may even be experiencing hell, some version of hell now. And so I think we need to talk about a hell like that. And we need to use a word like hell. I think it's important to use that word. 
Rob Bell writes this. We need a loaded, volatile, adequately violent, dramatic, serious word to describe the very real consequences we experience when we reject the good and true and beautiful life that God has for us. We need a word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secrets hidden deep within our hearts all the way to the massive, society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's word, in God's way. And for that, the word hell works quite well. Let's keep it. And I agree with Rob that we should keep that word. I believe that that is the hell that Jesus is talking about in our text for this morning. If you look back, you'll notice that he says, it is better for you to enter into life, to enter into life, to enter into eternal life, to enter into the kingdom of God. It's better for you to enter maimed. It's better for you to chop off any part of you, get rid of any part of you that might want to stay behind in this world of brokenness, might want to live a different way of life that is not the way of God. It's better to get rid of that and enter into life. He's constantly pointing at life here and now. And we know that he's speaking in hyperbole. He's using extreme language on purpose. We know this because we have little, if any, historical evidence of people walking around with their Hands and feet chopped off and their eyes poked out. No. Jesus is using that kind of strong language to indicate the gravity around living for life instead of living this way of death. Clearly, he wants people to choose life and light and love and joy as opposed to this way of hell. Now, I don't believe God sends anyone to hell. But I do believe that we humans make some hellacious choices. And sometimes we make those choices. Sometimes we are victims of the hellacious choices of others. I also believe that we... People of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, the body of Christ, however we want to put it. We are called by God's very self to do some serious work in the face of those hellacious choices. Salvation work that began with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And continues as we embody that same life and death and resurrection in our own lives as individuals. And as a church. And the good news about that work that we're called to. Is that we can stare hell in the face. With hopeful resolve. And without fear. Because we're continually reminded that the gates of hell will not prevail. That perfect love casts out all fear. And that the darkness cannot does not and will not overcome the light that is the love of God in our universe. That's the way that we're called to lead, to live, to lead others to, is this way of life and light and joy in the face of so much hell that we see around us. The way I like to put it is, 
We have plenty of hell to be concerned about here than to be overly concerned about any hell off in the distance. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your love and for your goodness. I thank you for the way that you've been with me on my own journey when it comes to this this doctrine that's difficult and, and that there's so much more that could be said, maybe more to be said in conversations. God, I pray that you would save us. Not from some eternal punishment, but from the choices that we sometimes make and the choices of others that hurt us. Save us into your way, your truth, your life. Help us to be vigilant in the way of love, in the face of the way of hell, so that ultimately your will may be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.